Before we start, I would firstly like to thank our sponsors, who are Aon and also Irish Life. In addition, I would like to thank all of our attendees and would like to take note of the fact that through your contributions, we are contributing to our two chosen charities, the Capuchin Day Centre and also Irish Rule of Law International, which is a human dignity foundation operated by Angus Kelly, who was a human rights activist. And both of those charities will be recipients of a share in 5,400 euro approximately. The other people I would like to thank today are obviously our speakers who I will introduce to you as we progress. But in addition, I would like to thank Paul Gunning and the Public Affairs Committee, together with all of the IT people who have made this possible today. So some of you may ask, why has the Bar of Ireland this year chosen as its topic human rights, but not just human rights at home, but also human rights abroad? The main concern is that though our human rights are recognized within our constitution between articles 40 and 44, and even though we have the UN Declaration on Human Rights, and even though we have the European Convention on Human Rights, the rights of citizenry within the EU, which includes ourselves, appear to be trampled upon. We have signatories to the EU treaties, governments within the EU, who are just simply ignoring human rights. For example, the government in Poland, they took the opportunity during the COVID crisis to introduce legislation allegedly in support of businesses, but on the back end of that legislation included enhanced penalties, for example, for insulting the president. In addition, in Poland, there has been a crackdown on human rights, upon assembly, and upon freedom of expression. And even though the president, President Duda, is a lawyer, there doesn't seem to be a recognition or an understanding of inalienable rights and fundamental rights. He's not alone within Europe. We have Prime Minister Orban in Hungary, certainly not a place to seek to reside if you are a woman or somebody of trans, transgender persuasion. LGBT rights are being trampled upon, rights of assembly, rights of expression, the rights of lawyers who oppose his rule, the rights of journalists who oppose his rule are all being trampled upon. Even though cases have been taken in the European Court of Justice, and even though issues have been taken by the European Parliament, he has ignored the various assertions that he is in breach of human rights and in breach of the EU treaty, and continues to in fact interfere with the independence of the judiciary, the very independence, which is one of the uh, parts of the armory of ensuring that human rights continues. Another consideration and concern is the fact that even though the European treaty itself allows for governments to impose sanctions on those other governments who are in obvious breach of human rights, it does not appear to have happened. We have to have concern when our own governments will not grasp the nettle, will not stand up, will not show backbone, and stand up to certain bullies and bullying governments within Europe. Because that is the creep, the very creep we have to ensure we fight against. 
So in ensuring that there is an expression and recognition of our own human rights at home, some of which we take for granted, in recognizing those, hopefully we will lead others to understand, believe, and ultimately act against those both at home and abroad who try and interfere with or trample upon the inalienable rights of human beings. The inalienable right to be equal, to have dignity, to have respect, to have fairness, to have justice, regardless of your gender, your race, your color, your creed, your political persuasion, your sexual orientation, none of that should matter. Each human being should be equal. So let us see some underscoring of the European Convention on Human Rights instead of lip service, which apparently is all our European parliamentarians, commission and European governments appear to be doing at present. So with that in mind, my own concern about the non-accountability and non-answerability for those who are responsible for violation of basic laws, I would now like to start by introducing our first speaker this evening. Our first speaker this evening really needs no introduction to the members of the bar or indeed to anyone here in Ireland. He is our own champion of human rights, our own Chief Justice. Mr. Justice Frank Clark. Mr. Justice Clark became Chief Justice in July of 2017. He was born here in Dublin in 1951 and educated by the CBS and at UCD. His degree was in mathematics and economics. He then completed his legal studies at the King's Inns here in Dublin in 1973. And 12 years later in 1985, he was called to the inner bar. His practice was mainly in commercial and public law fields, including administrative, public law, and constitutional law. He was twice appointed by the Supreme Court as counsel to present arguments on references of bills to the Supreme Court by our own president under Article 26 of the Constitution. He also acted as counsel to our public accounts committee. Having served as our Chief Justice now for some years, he is going to abandon us later this summer at the end of his tenure. He will be a huge loss to the Irish citizenry. So Chief Justice, I'd like to ask you to present your paper. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Maura. Um, thank you for those kind remarks. Um, it's a salutary thought from my perspective uh, that it is 28 years next month when the bar did me the honour of electing me to the office, which you now hold. Um, that makes me feel even older than I probably am. <clears throat> but can I thank you and the bar for organising this conference and for inviting me <clears throat> um, for all of the reasons you've addressed in your introduction. Challenges to the rule of law pose a very major issue for, I think, all of us uh, in the current times. And the particular aspect of the challenge uh, that I want to talk about concerns the legitimacy of the interest which each national judiciary has in respect for the rule of law in all other countries, but most especially for those of us in the European Union, in the other member states of the Union. M many of you will recall that um, in January of last year, um, my friend and colleague, Mr. Justice John McMenamin, represented both me and the Association of Judges of Ireland 
uh, in the so-called Thousand Cloaks March in Poland, which was a march of judges from within Poland, but also from throughout Europe in support of the Polish judiciary in the context of the very issues which you introduced. Um, and at that time, there was some discussion, some observations made by commentators which suggested that that was an inappropriate step for us to take. And I'd like to comment perhaps on, on some of those issues, partly to explain why we took them and why I think we were right to take them, uh, but also I think because they provide a focus for some of the important issues with which we are faced. Um, perhaps the first point that was made was, well, should judges be getting involved in public controversy at all? Um, I, I'm a great believer that judges need to uh, exercise significant restraint in commenting on public affairs. Um, but I think it's always been accepted that there is an exception to that when you're dealing with issues that involve the judiciary directly. Uh, I know that judges are consulted regularly by government on issues involving the judiciary. I'm sure Michael McDougall, when he was both attorney general and when he was minister for justice, would have had occasion to talk to senior judges about proposals that affected the judiciary directly. Um, so I, I think one can say that there is a, a general entitlement of judges to be consulted, uh, to be involved in issues that are directly effective of the role of the judiciary. Um, obviously, many matters subject to the bounds of the constitution are ultimately decided either by the government or by the Europeans as legislators. Uh, we were entitled to be heard. We may not always be agreed with. Uh, assuming the legislation is consistent with the constitution, uh, we have to apply it even when it applies to us, and even if we don't necessarily uh, agree that the right policy choices have been made. Um, but I do strongly assert that it, uh, as a general proposition, judges are entitled to engage, in hopefully a restrained and reasonable way, but nonetheless to engage publicly on issues that are of direct effect to the judiciary. But it might be said, well, that's all very well. That's you talking about your own issues in Ireland. Um, one of the arguments that was put forward uh, in opposition to the suggestion that it was right for us to become involved in, in that Polish demonstration was we were, in, in a sense, interfering with policy choices to be made by a, a foreign government, and really that that was none of our business. Uh, can I just explore that in a little more detail? Um, of course, many of the issues which arise in respect of the regulation of the judiciary do involve policy choices uh, and don't involve serious questions concerning the independence of the judiciary and the effect that that can have on the rule of law. But I think you need to carefully analyze the issues to decide whether they truly are uh, matters that are within the legitimate policy options of governments and uh, parliaments. Um, one of the most controversial issues that was current at that time in Poland uh, was legislation which had the effect of reducing the retirement age uh, of judges from 70 to 65. Now, you might say the retirement age of judges is a policy issue. Um, indeed, in Ireland and in the UK as well, the retirement age was reduced to 70 
in recent decades, though I understand it's about to go up again in the UK. And there's been some debate in Ireland about whether that should happen here as well. So at a one level, that is a policy choice. So my judges might be entitled to be heard on it. You wouldn't regard it as having major implications uh, for, for the independence of the judiciary. But importantly, in the Polish context, it wasn't just that the age was being reduced, but it was being reduced retrospectively, so that serving judges were going to, over the age of 65, were going to be, as it were, cleaned out. Uh, an entire cohort of the senior judiciary were going to be prematurely retired. We all know that for many years, since the late 1990s, when the age was reduced in Ireland, uh, there were judges of our higher courts who served to 72. Their terms were not changed. There was no interference with their tenure, as it were. Uh, the new retirement age only applied to those who were appointed after uh, the, the relevant date for coming into effect of the legislation. So I think it's a much more serious matter uh, where an entire group of judges are effectively removed at a stroke, giving the capability of introducing new judges into those courts in very significant numbers. So I think that's a bit more than policy, but it didn't stop there. Another measure was introduced, which greatly expanded the ability to reopen cases previously decided. Now, again, you might say, so what? Most countries have some capability of reopening cases that have been finally decided. Uh, in Ireland, for example, you can seek to set aside a final judgment on the grounds that it was procured by fraud. And again, we have the so Greendale jurisprudence restated again in a judgment of the Supreme Court this Monday in the student transport case, which allows in, in very limited circumstance the reopening of cases that have been finally decided and perhaps a debate about precisely where that threshold should lie is purely a policy matter. There are arguments on both sides. If you make it too easy, you run the risk of causing great injustice to all those whose cases are over. If, if it is relatively straightforward to reopen cases and they have to fight them again. On the other hand, if it's too restrictive, you would run the risk that a case, for example, procured by fraud might not be capable of being reopened. So again, in principle, there is nothing wrong with a debate at a policy level about where exactly to draw the line between finality, which is an important principle, not only in our case law, but also as was pointed out in the judgment on Monday in the case law of the European Union, on the one hand, and some degree of flexibility to ensure that manifest injustice uh, doesn't continue. And we've changed the law in that regard in certain areas, uh, particularly on the criminal side. It's now possible to have a with prejudice appeal, something that didn't exist in the past. But on the other hand, it's also possible to bring an application to reopen uh, a criminal conviction on the grounds of establishing uh, a miscarriage of justice. Again, in the distant past, that was not possible. So tweaking the threshold uh, of irreversibility, as it were, is something that can be a legitimate policy discussion. But then again, one has to look at what's the purpose behind it in a particular case. And if you couple it with the fact that you're suddenly allowing it to be much easier to revisit decisions made in the past, and you're getting rid of a lot of the judges who made those decisions and replacing them, that becomes arguably something that's a lot closer to the line. And then we had radical changes to the disciplinary structure in respect of judges in uh, Poland at that time. 
And again, all countries have some level of disciplinary process, uh, as we all know. Uh, in Ireland, the only formal legal process is the removal uh, at the moment by a, a resolution of both houses. But we also have the Judicial Council Act uh, and the Conduct Committee regime within that legislation, which is in the course of being set up. And as an aside, I might mention that uh, the uh, guidelines on ethics, which will form an important part of that, are likely to be signed off on by the Conduct Committee within the next couple of weeks and will go to the board of the Judicial Council. So progress has been made in that regard. And therefore you might say tweaking your disciplinary procedure is a policy choice. The Oireachtas voted in the Judicial Council bill to set up that the conduct committee regime. So what's wrong with other countries doing it their way? But again, if, you, if the way in which the disciplinary chamber is established uh, is uh, judges being selected by the parliament directly uh, and where the government is taking other measures that I've described in respect of the judiciary, that becomes an important issue in itself. So I would strongly argue that the sort of matters that were giving rise to concern in respect of Poland had gone well beyond policy matters, both individually and particularly cumulatively when you put all of those measures together. They were legitimately considered, I think, by many judges throughout Europe as a significant attack on the independence of the judiciary and way beyond uh, policy matters where it would be perhaps wise for judges from other countries not to become uh, involved. And I would take further comfort in that view by the fact that there have been since then a number of decisions of the uh, Court of Justice, building on the jurisprudence first identified in the Portuguese tax judges case, uh, which have held that certain of the measures adopted in Poland uh, and potentially also in some other countries uh, are a breach of the independence of the judiciary and thus of the rule of law on which uh, the European legal order is based. So I would take comfort from the fact that whatever might have been the debate back in January of last year about whether these matters were purely policy matters best left to the polls to deal with themselves, there has now been support for the view we took, which was that it was other people's business as well uh, in the decisions of the European Court. But then there might be perhaps a third leg of the argument that says, well, okay, judges are entitled to comment on matters involving judges. And perhaps you've persuaded us now that this, these weren't just legitimate policy choices, which are a matter for debate within a member state between its judiciary and its parliament or government, or whoever has the power to make the relevant decisions. But why is it our business? Why is it the business of Irish judges to be becoming involved? And that's the real focus of, of what I want to talk about. Um, I've really, I suppose, three points that I'd like to make in, in that context. Um, first is, I suppose, uh, almost philosophical argument of solidarity between judiciaries. Um, I think injure one, you injure all. I think there is a legitimate concern, no matter what the particular connections between countries are, with judges being entitled to have uh, a say in situations where they consider that there are serious attacks 
of the judiciary in another country. But that's a well-explored area and one which uh, perhaps doesn't need too much further uh, exposition at this stage. Uh, though in not concentrating on it, I wouldn't like to be taken to not agree with it, uh, but just say others have made that argument uh, much better than I could. Um, there are two other points I think that are, are worth, however, developing. The first is that increasingly the Irish judiciary and particularly the Irish higher court are involved in a range of uh, organizations representative of APEX courts or the judiciary generally, uh, frequently within the European Union, but in some cases within the wider ambit of the Council of Europe and sometimes even uh, a wider ambit still uh, uh, of general international involvement. And insofar as the issues with which were concerning us uh, and which led to our involvement uh, in the Polish march um, or were concerned, these bodies were, I think it'd be fair to say, spoke with one voice in coming out in strong support for our colleagues in Poland and their colleagues in Poland. And it is worth just pausing on some of these organizations. Um, as many of you will know, throughout Europe, there are different systems of structures of courts. Uh, in many of the civil law countries, there is a separate stream of courts for public law issues, administrative law, and cases of that variety, although the precise line between what fits into the public law box and what fits into the ordinary court box can vary from country to country. Uh, and also many countries have separate constitutional courts or tribunals. We, as you know, typical of a common law country, have a single Supreme Court that is the apex court for all of those issues. But because of that diversity of strands, there are different bodies representative of those different strands throughout Europe. So you have, for example, the network of presidents, which is a group of the presidents of what I might call ordinary Supreme Courts, the courts that deal with crime, civil law, family law, and the like. Indeed, it's, it's a body of which my predecessor, Susan Denham, was it the president of the presidents, as it were, uh, some five or six years ago. And I have the honor to be one of the vice presidents at the moment. That body came out which represents each of the Supreme Courts of uh, the European Union, and also has, as a result of a decision made in the last month, observer status for former members of the European Union, uh, and also for candidate countries and the EEA countries. So it's broadly representative of EU and closely aligned states, if you like. And it represents each of those countries. Uh, and that body, as I say, came out in very strong support of their Polish colleagues, issued statements, and many of those uh, countries sent themselves representatives. Uh, likewise, there is an organization called ACA, which represents the supreme administrative courts or equivalents throughout Europe. And it too has been strongly supported. And there are also the European network of councils for the judiciary. There's the Association of European Judges. Each of those bodies in their own way took a strong position. So this wasn't a, a sort of a frolic of its own on the part of the Irish judiciary uh, becoming involved in a foreign field, as it were. This was part of a unified approach by the judiciary generally throughout Europe to support those judiciaries whose independence was under threat 
uh, and in whose states, therefore, the rule of law was being called into question. So I think we legitimately took significant comfort from the fact that we were not alone, but were simply doing the same kind of thing uh, that many other judiciaries throughout Europe were doing. But there is perhaps, from the perspective of uh, a national court within the European Union, not only a Supreme Court, but perhaps particularly a Supreme Court, there is, I think, even one greater reason of practicality as to why we say that the independence of the judiciary in other member states of the European Union is our business. We are called upon constantly nowadays uh, to respect, enforce, or the like, judgments of other of the courts of other member states. And that's a necessary part of a, a logical and functioning uh, legal system within the European Union. Um, if every time you didn't like what was decided in some other country, you were free to take your own view, there would be no consistency. It would be very difficult for business to be conducted and many other aspects of a harmonized system would just not work. Now, you can have a legitimate debate about just how far some of that harmonization should go, but certainly a lot of it is a necessary part of the legal order of the European Union. But that requires Irish judges to respect the judgments of judges from other countries with very limited room for uh, escaping from the obligations of sincere cooperation, uh, wh which that entails. Uh, we are, for example, regularly called upon uh, to surrender persons who are the subject of European arrest warrants. And there are, of course, grounds within the European arrest warrant regime on which surrender can be declined, but they're relatively fixed. But there's no general discretion to say no. Uh, we just don't think it was a good thing that Mr. X was being sought for surrender to country Y. Um, and there are obvious reasons why that is the law. But that means we have to respect the decision of the courts of the country that have made that request. Under the Brussels regulations, there are a whole range of areas where we're required to respect and enforce judgments of the courts of other countries within the European Union, uh, with very limited grounds for questioning those decisions. Uh, and uh, perhaps having to stay proceedings in Ireland in favour of proceedings in another country and then respecting and obeying, as it were, the decision of that other country uh, when made. And there are even rules, as we all know, for determining which country's courts, most frequently the country first seized of the proceedings, who get to decide who has the jurisdiction. And again, one has to, uh, subject to very limited exceptions, obey that. Uh, for those in insolvency, under the insolvency regulation, there are very strict rules about where cross-border insolvency is to be tried. Uh, a country first seized gets first call on whether it has jurisdiction. If it finds it does, then the entire insolvency process is dealt with in that country with the possibility of some satellite litigation in other countries where that's necessary. And you could give very many other examples. So the judges of any member state are called upon regularly, and I might say increasingly, to sincerely cooperate with judges in other member states, to respect what they decide, uh, to respect it even if you think it's wrong. 
just as you would expect them to respect your decision, even if they think it's wrong. Um, but the underlying condition to that system working is that you at least believe that the judge whose decision you are respecting was an independent judge who did their best to come up with a fair decision in the case. And there's always room for debate about what's right and wrong, but you can't have a system where everyone can second guess everyone else. But if there is legitimate reason to be concerned about whether the judge whose order you are being asked to enforce or respect was truly an independent judge respecting the rule of law, then I think that undermines the system and is a real danger, not just to the courts of that country, but to our courts. Because if we are seen to have to enforce orders of courts where there are, is legitimate concern about the independence of the judges of those courts, we too are tainted by that process. And therefore, for that reason also, I think it is legitimately our business. Um, so uh, I would again strongly say that not only is comment on issues of interest to the judiciary a legitimate exception to the restraint which judges should show about engaging publicly on issues of con potential controversy. I would say that there are legitimate reasons for believing that what we were concerned with were not matters of policy, but were matters that went well beyond that. And for the reasons which I sought to discuss in the last part of uh, this address, I also think that uh, they are the legitimate business of all judges in all member states because of the fact that we are obliged to respect the judgments of, of those in other courts. Now, there are, this is the last point I make, there are some limited exceptions that have grown up in, in the jurisprudence, some of them on references from the Irish courts, where it is possible to decline, for example, surrender uh, under a European arrest warrant if there are real questions over the independence of the court, the specific court, which is going to deal with that case. I have to say, I understand why that decision was made, but it places a very great burden, I think, on national courts. Um, it's clear that it's not enough to be able to show that there is a systemic problem in the country who has, which has sought the surrender, but also that it will affect that case. And that's a hard judgment to make when you're looking at something that happened 2,000 kilometers away. And it might be one thing for the Irish Supreme Court to have some idea about what happened in the district court in district number one in Donegal. It might be a lot more difficult for the Irish Supreme Court to form a judgment or any of the Irish courts dealing with the issue about a local court in Wrocław or wherever. Um, it's a very big burden to place on a national court to form a judgment about the specifics of a case in another country, but that's that's the job which we have to do. So it means it's a very limited exception to the general rule. So in conclusion, I would say uh, those who have argued that it was none of our business were wrong. It is our business. It's the legitimate business of all judges to be concerned about the rule of law in other countries. And it's particularly the legitimate business of judges of member states of the European Union to be concerned about the independence of judges in other member states. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll hand back to the chair. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chief Justice. 
Our next speaker is another Chief Justice. This time, it's the Chief Justice in Northern Ireland, the Lord Chief Justice of Northern Ireland, Sir Declan Morgan. Morgan was educated at Cambridge University, called to the bar in 1976, and called to the inner bar in 1993. He was Senior Crown Counsel in Northern Ireland from 2002 until his appointment to the Northern Ireland in May of 2004. He served in the Family Law Division, and then in September of 2000, became one of two judges with responsibility for judicial review. Sir Declan was appointed chairman of the Law Reform Advisory Committee for Northern Ireland in 2004. In addition, he was chairman of the Northern Ireland Law Reform Commission from April 2007 until his appointment to Chief Justice in Northern Ireland in 2009. Sir Declan is also chairman of the Northern Ireland Judicial Appointments Commission, and in addition, he is an honorary bencher of the Middle Temple. My understanding, and I hope I'm correct, is that Sir Declan is going to give us a talk on a paper entitled, Is Brexit a Challenge to the Rule of Law on the Island of, I on the Island of Ireland? Sir Declan. Maura, thank you very much for that um, generous introduction. Um, you've actually managed to get the title of the paper absolutely correct, so that's another plus for you. Um, I'm obviously delighted to have the opportunity to speak today. Uh, during my time as Chief Justice in Northern Ireland, I've enjoyed and benefited from good working relationships with the Irish judiciary and bar, so it's a particular pleasure for me uh, to... Uh, I don't know what's happening in the background here, but it is a particular pleasure for me to uh, join you at today's conference. And I couldn't help noticing that uh, tomorrow's session is commemorating the centenary of the first female members of the Bar of Ireland. And we have our own way of celebrating that centenary coming up in September uh, when Mrs. Justice Keegan takes on the role of uh, Chief Justice in this jurisdiction. And of course she will be, as I understand it, um, the first head of jurisdiction in the United Kingdom uh, to actually uh, uh, take on that role um, as a woman. We're a bit behind you in that regard, but I'm hoping that some of what we're doing is managing to catch us up. Having had the pleasure of swearing Mrs. Justice Keegan in uh, as a judge of the High Court some six years ago, um, it's a great pleasure to see that she'll soon be sworn in uh, in a different guise uh, as my successor. Um, the constitutional impact of Brexit in Northern Ireland is currently the subject of judicial review proceedings in Belfast High Court. A loyalist pastor and a number of unionist politicians have brought separate challenges to the Northern Ireland Protocol to the agreement on the withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union. And the grounds of challenge are based on references to a number of constitutional statutes and international agreements including the Act of Union in 1800, the European Convention on Human Rights, the Treaty on the European Union, the Belfast Agreement, the Northern Ireland Act 1998, and the European Union Withdrawal Act in the United Kingdom in 2018. And put briefly, the politicians group argue that firstly, Article 6 of the Act of Union 1800 prevents the people of Northern Ireland from being placed on a different footing to those in Great Britain in relation to treaties made with foreign powers. The applicants claim 
that contrary to Article 6, the protocol places the people of Northern Ireland on a different footing to those in GB, and as a result, the protocol lacks legal effect. And their second argument is that the Northern Ireland Act 1998 prevents the constitutional changes in the relationship between Northern Ireland and Great Britain affected by the protocol. And in particular, it is submitted that the protocol is incompatible with the Northern Ireland Act by evading the requirement for cross-community support uh, for uh, measures um, following a petition of concern lodged in the Assembly. The pastor, uh, Clifford People, Peoples, contends that the constitutional change in the status of Northern Ireland as affected by the protocol, that is the customs border between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, breaches the constitutional issues section of the Belfast Agreement as the change was made without the consent of the majority of the people of Northern Ireland. And his second limb, limb of challenge is that prerogative powers cannot be used to affect a major change in the UK's constitutional arrangements. As Parliament has not repealed or amended the Act of Union 1800, it remains constitutionally superior to the protocol which was created by prerogative powers. While the legal limitations of Northern Ireland's position post-Brexit is scrutinised in the courts, a more immediate and direct impact of Brexit has been felt by Northern Ireland citizens in recent months. From the 29th of March 2021, over 12 nights, sporadic violence occurred across Northern Ireland with over 90 police officers hurt, water cannon deployed to disperse rioters, and violence spilling across one of the peace walls in Belfast. I'm not sure to what extent people are aware that we still retain 13 miles of police walls in Belfast, which are designed to protect each section of the community from each other. The violence was mostly concentrated in loyalist areas. The reason given for the disorder was the perceived betrayal of those communities by the Prime Minister and their consequent perception of dilution of their British identity. That visceral response was recently given voice at Westminster by members of the Loyalist Communities Council, which represents three Loyalist parliamentary groups in Northern Ireland. Members appeared before the Northern Ireland Select Affairs Committee on the 19th of May to explain Loyalist issues with the Northern Ireland Protocol. The members told the committee that the protocol is a fundamental breach of democracy, that there was a seething anger at Boris Johnson's broken promise of unfettered GBNI access, and that violence might be used as a last resort. And just to give you a flavour of the exchanges at the committee, one member of the LCC, a 19-year-old called Joel Key, said, I'm not sure if and when violence will be the answer. I'm saying that I would not root it off the table. And he added, I'm no fan of violence. I think that it has to be an absolute last resort. But it worries me that we could potentially reach a point in this country or in any country where people feel that they do have to defend themselves. The committee chairman, Simon Hoare, responded to that comment by saying that it was incredibly worrying and dispiriting. And he later tweeted, let us be clear and unambiguous. If the rule of law and democracy means anything to you, violence is never an option. 
Nevertheless, a recent poll has indicated that 59% of Northern Ireland's population fear a summer of violence over the Brexit Irish Sea border. And that opinion appears to be shared by the chairman of the LCC, David Campbell, who in response to Ursula von der Leyen's recent statement that the protocol must be implemented, said that Northern Ireland is to, quote, descend into chaos, close quotes, this summer, as loyalist anger around the protocol grows. So how have we arrived at this juncture? Uh, uh, that is worthy of some scrutiny, where the very foundations of the rule of law are under threat in a part of the United Kingdom in this island after negotiation of a treaty by a British prime minister, significantly by many citizens who themselves identify themselves as British loyalist and unionist. As is frequently the case in this jurisdiction, the starting point, I'm afraid, is to look backwards. We do rather a lot of that here. On the 14th of September 2018, Brexit Law NI, which is a partnership between researchers from the schools of law at Queen's University Belfast and Ulster University and human rights experts from the Committee on the Administration of Justice, reported that Brexit would have detrimental consequences for the peace process in Northern Ireland and would weaken human rights and equality protections. Professor Colin Harvey, like myself, uh, um, uh, 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 brought up and, and nurtured in St. Columns College in, in Derry, uh, leading the study commented in this way. He said, this is a profound constitutional moment for Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland. Brexit will threaten the peace process and weaken protections for human rights and equality. It risks disrupting North-South cooperation, increasing racist immigration enforcement and dividing British and Irish citizens. It could also reduce international oversight of human rights and introduce a new focus for conflict between divided communities. Many of these matters have simply been neglected in the discussions such far, thus far, and that must change. When the withdrawal agreement and protocol finally emerged, initially there was a sense of relief. Scrutiny of these agreements, however, gives rise to many difficult questions particularly the effect on Northern Ireland. Its position is unique in being the only part of the United Kingdom to share a land border with the EU while enjoying the absence of a hard border between two states on one island in further furtherance of our peace and stability. Professor Gordon Anthony in his paper, uh, EU Law and Post-Brexit Northern Ireland, succinctly provides an overview of the EU law's position in post-Brexit Northern Ireland, he uses the phrase legal hybridity, which in my view concisely captures the unique obligations that legal and political institutions in Northern Ireland now have in relation to two constitutional orders. For as long as the protocol remains in force, which is presently four years, that will be the case. But as Professor Anthony notes, it means that aspects of EU law are locked into Northern Ireland law, where parts of the protocol and that portion particularly on rights will remain binding for as long as the withdrawal agreement is in force, and where others such as on goods and state aid binding unless the Northern Ireland Assembly votes to end their continued operation.
for matters under the protocol, there will be application of the supremacy principle, observance of the Charter of Fundamental Rights. If the case concerns the implementation of EU law, Article 267 TFEU references are possible relating to matters relating to goods, state aid, etc. Application of general EU law principles in accordance with the supremacy principles and Frankovich damages uh, are also possible. The problems that Professor Harvey warned of in 2018 are coming to pass. The souring of political relations, the harm to North-South bodies and accompanying community violence. However, so also is the impact on rights. Rights under Article 2 of the Protocol, which act as a constraint on the legislative and executive power, fall to be considered. A range of directives are listed in Annex 1 to the Protocol. If required to rule upon the meaning of the directives, the CJEU may draw upon the Charter of Fundamental Rights. As Professor Anthony notes, so, so it should do so. And the Northern Ireland courts would be required to follow um, that case law by reason of Article 13.2 of the Protocol. That contrasts with the position under Section 5 of the Withdrawal Act, which sought to banish the Charter to the outer reaches of the galaxy, never to return. In a recent paper, my colleague Lord Justin McCluskey has noted that the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union was singled out for special targeted attention in the UK domestic Brexit legislation. But the Charter, it seems, um, ceased to form part of domestic EU law overnight, but it's not clear um, that uh, that has been achieved in relation to Northern Ireland. There is a context which gives rise to concerns about the present and future rule of law culture in the United Kingdom, which has been generated largely by Brexit. First, several decisions of the UK courts on Brexit related issues have provoked a vitriolic outcry against the judiciary in which senior government figures were prominent and to which the Lord Chancellor of the time seemed reluctant to respond. Secondly, the government, following the latest of these decisions, which had comprehensively lost, quickly announced that there would be a fundamental review of judicial review, which has now been completed. Despite the review recommending only minimal changes, the government announced that it would nevertheless be proceeding with more radical reforms aimed at limiting judicial review in the future. Thirdly, in December 2020, the government announced a review of the Human Rights Act with terms of reference which raised some concerns about a desire to reduce protections in various respects. I'm assured by Peter Gross um, that that will not be um, the approach of that body. We wait to see what happens. Fourthly, the UK Internal Market Bill published in September 2020 contained a provision which was subsequently withdrawn because of opposition in the House of Lords, which equipped the government with powers to breach international law, um, including matters contained within the Withdrawal Act 2018. I think we have to be clear about what the rule of law requires. It is a necessary condition that there are independent and impartial judges delivering justice in the courts, but that is plainly not sufficient. There is a need for consensus about the underlying arrangements. The community 
and their representatives have to be committed to the use of the political process and the courts, if necessary, to resolve any disputes. The elected representatives of the people must conduct themselves and their arguments in a manner which promotes resolution by exclusively peaceful means. But it is painfully obvious in Northern Ireland that we have experienced too often a failure of politics to focus on solutions and on a con as a consequence, this has promoted division. The adherence of elements of our community to the notion of success through violence hangs over us like a dark foreboding shadow undermining our democracy. Brexit has proved fertile ground for the forces of darkness. Clearly, there is much yet to be clarified for Northern Ireland and for Ireland post-Brexit. Tortured negotiations continue, and ironically, it is a hangover from those which delivered the withdrawal agreement that is now causing concern, Article 16, the escape clause. As is frequently the case, when states negotiate international treaties, they enter into a balancing exercise of weighing up benefits of cooperation against the risks of binding themselves to common regimes. The insurance policy is the escape clause, allowing parties to temporarily suspend or derogate from obligations under certain conditions. Article 16 of the protocol attempts to fulfill that function. The overarching aim of the protocol is to avoid a hard border in the island of Ireland, to ensure protection of the Good Friday Agreement, and importantly, to preserve peace on the island of Ireland. Therefore, and uniquely for a trade agreement, the focus is not on economic welfare, but on political stability and peace. Given its broad nature, there are significant problems which the parties must now contend with. Dr. Billy Orajo of Queen's University Belfast has noted that effectively, it gives the parties carte blanche to deviate from their obligations whenever it suits them, and asks, should parties to a trade agreement that is fundamentally about maintaining peace be given the right to escape even temporarily from their obligations? For many, surprisingly, it was the EU that detonated the sanctity surrounding the potential use of Article 16 in the midst of a row about the supply of COVID-19 vaccines. And having done so, the cries from those seeking abandonment of the protocol grew louder and borrowed some traction from Europe's actions. For Ireland, a no-deal Brexit was an unpalatable outcome. The protocol brought relief, but is that relief only temporary? Brexit means Brexit was the mantra of its. For Northern Ireland, what this means is opaque, but what is clear is that EU law will continue to have effect for some time to come in many areas of Northern Ireland's executive, legislature and judicial branches. That fact in itself is currently a catalyst for violence and a consequent breakdown in adherence to the rule of law in Northern Ireland society. 100 years from partition, the people resident on this island have again had their lives shaped by decisions from the East, but now beyond just Great Britain. Only when the challenges are resolved will the true meaning and impact of Brexit on the rule of law on the whole of the island of Ireland be known. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sir Declan, for that.
Um, before we move on to our third speaker, we're just going to have a, a little short discourse with our first two Chief Justices. Um, I note, I, I've taken a note of what was said earlier, and I just want to bring to the attention of, of people attending that in respect of what happened in Poland, um, after the justices had marched with lawyers in Warsaw, uh, ultimately matters came for hearing. Different cases were taken in the Court of Justice of the EU, the CJEU, and also the European Court of Human Rights. And in September of last year, the European Parliament adopted a resolution expressing concerns regarding the independence of the judiciary and the threats to human rights in Poland. And basically, the Supreme Court in Poland continued with its investigations of members of the judiciary. And they also held that it would be wrong for other judges uh, who had not been appointed by the president to literally question the uh, credentials of those who had been appointed by the president of Poland. And the deputy minister of justice in Poland basically said that the CJEU, uh, the court of justice of the EU had violated Poland's sovereignty by intervening in domestic affairs, all of which would seem to go against the treaty uh, on the European Union, where it said that they valued democracy and fundamental rights uh, to ensure that there was independence and impartial courts. So I, I was just wondering if there were any uh, other cases of which either of you Chief Justices were aware, which had been brought before the CJEU or indeed before the Court of Human Rights in respect of uh, actions by governments uh, that was interfering with the independence of their respective judiciaries. Are either of you aware of any other instances? We're all aware of Poland, we're all aware of Hungary, but are there any other issues out there that should be concerning uh, us about interference with judiciary that you're aware of in respect of cases being brought? Yeah, I'm just getting my uh, mute off. Um, funnily enough, one of the more recent cases that's of interest um, involves a country that wouldn't be regarded as being a particular to the rule of law is Iceland. Uh, but there was a, a recent decision of the Court of Human Rights, which determined that uh, decisions of, I think the Icelandic Supreme Court, certainly one of its senior courts, were invalid because it wasn't a properly constituted court at all because of the methods adopted um, for the appointment of the judges. It wasn't an issue about what kind of methods you should have, but that the actual methods provided in law had not been complied with. And I think that's an interesting new layer to this, you know, mm. uh, which may well find an echo in European Union uh, law as well as uh, the, the uh, Convention on Human Rights end of things. Um, in that there seems to be some questions now raised about not the independence of the courts of Poland, but whether they are properly constituted as a matter of European Union law. And indeed, there's a, a case due on uh, in our Supreme Court um, in the next few weeks, uh, which raises issues along those lines. So I shouldn't say much about it, except to say that it's a very live issue. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, Sir Declan, have you any comment before? No, we... I've not, I have nothing to add to that. Nope. Okay, thank you for that. Um, strange times, what's happening in Europe, in certain parts of Europe. Um, thank you both for your presentations.
and we're now ready to move on to our third and fourth speakers. So our third speaker this evening is Baroness Helena Kennedy. So welcome Baroness Kennedy. And Baroness Kennedy is a Queen's Counsel and is a very distinguished lawyer, uh, not just in, in Britain, but also is well recognized here within our own jurisdiction and well known. She has spent her professional life giving voice to those who most need it, those who have not had fair access to a system of justice, and she has championed civil liberties, promoting human rights. She's conducted many prominent cases to include those who were accused of terrorism, also uh, involved in cases uh, dealing with official secrets, dealing with governments who have been trying uh, to remain unanswerable as such, and also dealing with cases regarding homicide. She is the founding force behind the establishment of the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights at the University of Oxford. In 1997, she was elevated to the House of Lords, where she is a Labour peer. She has published books on how the justice system is failing women and has written and broadcasted on many issues over the years. Currently, she has taken on the role of director to the International Bar Association on Human Rights Institute, and she also directs the Institute's work upholding the, human, the, the rule of law and human rights globally. She is a well-recognized human rights advocate and also a well-recognized advocate of equality and diversity. So without further ado, Baroness Kennedy. Maura, thank you so much. Um, and it's a great pleasure to be here and uh, an honor to be included in such distinguished company. Um, I'm going to pull the focus out um, 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 from even Europe um, to look at um, uh, what's happening in our world. Because of course, all of us are confronted with a pandemic which is, uh, has uh, presented nations with challenges which have inevitably involved um, erosions of well-established uh, 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 rights. And, uh, and so we're not, we don't have freedom of association in the way that we had. We probably don't have much in the way of freedom of protest. Lots of, lots of rights have, uh, have been um, uh, necessarily involved incursions uh, um, uh, uh, and erosions. And so, so we're seeing that everywhere. But the, I want to talk about another pandemic. Um, and it's the pandemic that is about the rise of populism globally. Because um, what we have seen happening, and it's, I would say that it's partly linked and, and very significantly linked to the events of, uh, of uh, 2008 and the economic crisis that uh, developed at that time. But, but that, of course, had its roots in the whole business of globalization and markets that were perhaps uh, uh, out of control. Um, but it also speaks to the fact that people feel uh, fear and insecurity. And when people feel fear and insecurity, um, they um, can very easily be uh, led into uh, populist um, uh, forms of politics. And we most certainly are seeing that in many places around the world. Uh, the rise of populism, uh, you know, and nationalism, um, which is often hostile to immigration and, and presence of the other in, in people's midst, therefore hostility to homosexual, hostility to uh, trans people, you know, that whole business of, of nationalist populism is, uh, is, is present in too many places. And, uh, and it has as a common factor, a number of things. And I think that we as lawyers can, can readily identify this. It almost invariably means that um, uh, there are attacks upon uh, 
uh, things that we hold dear. I mean, the, the, the rule of law, um, uh, media freedom, um, attacks on institutions. And, uh, and in this period, um, which led up to uh, the, uh, the referendum in the UK, there was that whole business about uh, where the talk was of the politics of disruption, that you know, institutions that had been created in the past had to be revisited um, uh, to make them appropriate for the 21st century. Um, well, let me tell you, some of the institutions, of course, are ones that we as lawyers would um, value and, uh, and, and hold as being precious to um, liberal democracies. But of course, even the term liberal democracy is now being challenged by people like Orban, um, by Putin too, um, that uh, democracy means voting and they often can uh, um, in some ways manipulate that process. Um, but uh, the business of the, the liberal aspect of that is, is under challenge. And even if you look at what's happened in the United Kingdom around Brexit, so much of it was about hostility to international courts. Uh, the, the sort of rules-based order of our world is, is under threat. And uh, President Trump uh, played a, a huge part in uh, creating a, a sense of disrespect for those national, international institutions. And so, I mean, uh, I'm, I hope that I'm sharing with many people who are listening today, a sense of relief that there's a sort of sen a, 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 a new administration uh, in, uh, in the White House is meaning that multilateralism is back on the, on the agenda and that we're seeing a sort of different way of having a conversation in the world. But we still have to recognize that um, populist government is, is having its day in the sun and, and when it's not going to disappear immediately um, by the arrival of Joe Biden in, in, the, in the White House. And so you only have to look around the world. Um, and uh, you know, I've moved into a position having been the head of an Oxford College for a while after practicing for many, many years at the English bar um, and at a high level. Um, I, I, I now am sort of looking at um, the ways in which we're seeing erosions of law uh, globally and why there has to be, um, to use uh, uh, Justice Clark's expression, a sense of solidarity. Um, I feel very strongly um, that it's, it's hard for judges to be defending each of themselves. And it's the role of lawyers that we have a duty to be defending an independent judiciary in our domestic uh, jurisdictions, but also internationally. And, uh, and lawyers um, inside the International Bar Association are constantly being reminded by me that that is one of our uh, um, important functions. And, and so I mean, the trajectory that I see, and it, and it is actually informing the work that we're doing inside the Institute of Human Rights at the International Bar Association, is, is that we're, we're, we're looking at um, populist governments which go after critics, go after their, their dissidents, go after their opposition, Navalny in Russia. They go after the people who, and we see it in Turkey. Uh, we see it, uh, um, well, we, indeed we see it everywhere. Um, but it means that we've, uh, over the last period, the number of journalists who've been killed, the number of journalists who have been uh, um, imprisoned, has escalated in the most incredible kind. And, uh, and in fact, at the moment, um, one of the things that the uh, Institute that I'm heading up is doing is that we are the secretariat to a big international uh, um, uh, 
program, um, which is about um, media uh, supporting media freedom. Um, because if you don't have a free uh, a free media, if you don't, if you have journalists under threat, then of course um, what happens is you don't have reporting of the corruptions in government, of the things that are happening to judiciaries, of the ways in which people's human rights are being eroded. That whole thing becomes silenced, and so it's not going to surprise us that uh, you then have the use of things like les majestés, uh, uh, criminal defamation, ways of silencing those who criticize the leadership um, inside places that might call themselves democracies, but which are certainly not liberal democracies. And so it's why Orban um, immediately under the cover of COVID um, uh, put through laws which were to uh, reduce the criticism of government policies because it would undermine their efforts to deal with uh, the pandemic. Um, and so journalists were really put on notice um, about what they could write about. Um, and we see that happening. And then of course, the lawyers who represent the, the um, uh, leaders of oppositions uh, or dissidents or uh, immigrants or uh, uh, journalists um, end up themselves being the subject of scrutiny and often themselves are now, for example, in places like Turkey, ending up being prosecuted with uh, the use of um, uh, elaborate concocted uh, uh, um, allegations. Um, of complicity in, in matters which are supposed to be undermining the state. So we, we, we should be alarmed. But to bring it closer to the, our domestic situation, I mean, we have, uh, as you've seen, um, the whole business of Brexit was very much premised on uh, a, a reclaiming of sovereignty um, uh, and bringing it all home. And what it has meant was that one of those things, as, uh, as indeed uh, Justice Morgan was saying, one of the things that was very much under attack in that whole Brexit uh, um, rhetoric was that the, the international uh, court, the, the European Court of Justice was, uh, was interfering in, 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 in our way of life and in our, the sovereignty of our own courts. And therefore we had to, our great, our courts are so wonderful that we, why should we be listening to uh, a European court and we had to bring it all back home. And, um, and of course the Charter of Right of Fundamental Rights was part of that thing that had to be immediately canceled out. Um, don't be deluded into thinking that, um, uh, that they haven't got their sights on other uh, courts and, and other ways in which international mechanisms um, find, uh, 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 you know, ha have recourse. Um, because even just now, there's going to be a review of the Human Rights Act um, and uh, uh, we're having judicial review is being looked at and, uh, and a call for new constitutional arrangements. And, and so when you ask that for what, what that new constitutional settlement is to mean, some of it is about re a restraint on our most senior, our most senior court. And, uh, and it undoubtedly has stemmed from uh, the unhappiness over the decision on the prorogation of parliament. And you, know, you remember that case. Um, which Brenda Hill uh, uh, was as our pres president of the court um, convened, but it was a unanimous decision. And yet at the same time, there's been a great deal of uh, re you know, resentment over the senior judiciary um, having made that decision. And indeed the previous decision that was made um, immediately after the, 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 the Brexit vote, um, where the, um, the are leaving, are giving notice about leaving the European Union and um, was going to be taken by the executive and the challenge was made, um, to, which went all the way through the, our courts 
our judges attacked as enemies of the people by our tabloid press, um, uh, horrifying profiles of our Supreme Court where every judge was looked at to see whether they were in some way complicit with the European Union. And, uh, and of course, as um, uh, our justices who've already spoken have mentioned, one of the things that um, has happened as membership of the European Union, which was very fertile and fruitful, was that our judges would take part in European-wide um, uh, judicial entities, which were looking at how do you deal with, for example, um, things like social media and its interference with uh, the courts and uh, the delivery of justice, um, the whole business of the European arrest warrant, the Eurojust, all those things. And, uh, and of course, our removal from all of that has serious um, um, implications. But what happened at the time of the first uh, judgment, um, the Gina Miller case, where she was saying it's not for the executive to make this decision about when uh, about triggering our removal from the European Union. It's a matter for Parliament. That is our constitutional arrangement. Um, the, the attack on the judiciary, looking at the fact that they were on a number of these bodies suggested in, in the minds of the tabloid press and of those who politicians who were so uh, profoundly committed to the, the removal of, uh, of, of, of the UK from uh, the European Union, um, was that uh, these judges were all um, politically aligned. And so what we're now seeing is this uh, con continuing thing of wanting to actually interfere with uh, our judiciary, how they're appointed, who they are, and uh, and so on, and uh, and I do hope that when the time comes, uh, that uh, certainly uh, Justice Clark, that you'll come, or others who are perhaps if you're retired, it's more easy, uh, and join us when we um, uh, take to the streets to uh, resist, um, as I will do it in Parliament, resist uh, these ways of trying to uh, absolutely interfere with our judicial uh, uh, judiciary's independence. But the, the assault upon um, judicial review is another interesting thing, where, um, of course, judicial review is seen as being the thing that had triggered those judgments, which were the, 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 you know, the leading judgments in relation to Brexit, the, the, uh, the initial triggering issue. Um, which was uh, unconstitutional. And then the decision that um, prorogation of parliament at a time of such import, um, when, we, when, when leaving the European Union was, was of such significance and parliament should be at the heart of, of the debates on that, um, that uh, attempt to close down parliament um, uh, was uh, of course judicially reviewed. That's what took it all the way up to our Supreme Court. Um, and so the judicial review process is now being challenged as being a political uh, 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 um, process that's used by um, people with a political intent and that in fact our judges are being drawn into politics. And so um, it's really um, the, the, our political class wanting to protect uh, uh, the judiciary um, is the rationale for wanting to deal with judicial review and to put limits on it. Now, a, a very committed um, Brexiteer, poly, uh, po well, member of the House of Lords, Lord Folks, who was a, a, a colleague of mine at the bar, um, was, was put in charge of a review of, of, the, of our judicial review processes and, uh, and indeed um, came to the conclusion that there was uh, really nothing um, uh, much needed to be done to, the, to judicial review, that it functioned in, you know, well and that with a, a few tweaks um, uh, you could in fact Make it um, even more effect effective, but um, but but because the uh, the 
the review which he was asked to conduct as a loyal uh, Brexiteer, um, because it didn't uh, deliver what they had hoped for, um, it's, uh, they're now actually going to have another review. So, you know, if you don't like the answer you get the first time, then you just do it again and again until you get the answer that you do want. So judicial review is now uh, still on the table to be visited. And Lord Folks is a, a very cross uh, uh, um, person and has made that very clear um, in his public statements. Um, and it's that business of blaming our uh, judiciary and our Supreme Court when in fact it's protecting our, con our constitution. Um, so um, my concern about all of this is that it's not, it's, it's, there's manifestations of this disrespect for law and the rules-based order is, is present in other things too. We had it with the business of the creation of the Inter Internal Markets Act which was very much, I mean, again, it was a breach of international law. It was a breach of the treaty that uh, uh, our prime minister had signed up to only nine months before, because this, was, this has been going through parliament since last uh, autumn. And, uh, and it, it, was, it was an absolutely disrespect for our, our, duty, our treaty obligations under international law. And, uh, and, and yet it was done and it was said, yes, it will be in breach of international law, but we feel it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, something that we want to have on the, uh, as, a, as a backstop in case we need it in relation to, to, to Northern Ireland. And so it was quite clear what, what happened was that uh, um, uh, Boris Johnson wanted to get his, uh, his uh, commitment that, you know, that it had to be done, Brexit had to be done. Um, he wanted to get that through and he just thought he could agree anything, even though it was pointed out what the implications of the, of, of the agreement were. And he uh, signed it off um, thinking that we'll just deal with it afterwards. We'll just, we'll fiddle with it later. Um, because he isn't a man who leads reads the small print and he isn't a man who listens well um, to legal advice. So um, I'm afraid that um, we are, we're seeing a growing uh, sense of disrespect for law, disrespect for our international obligations and, uh, and, and a lack of commitment to that rules-based order. And when you get somewhere like the United Kingdom doing that, I think that, you know, it really is messaging the world that actually um, uh, uh, the rules-based order is in, is, is, is becoming slowly and but surely and a phantom rather than reality. So it's, I mean, unless Joe Biden can really get people around the table, um, I, I feel very concerned about what the future means. I mean, I, I always with great sort of, you know, uh, when I'm giving lectures to students and so on, um, talk about the way in, the beginnings of, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, the creation of those conventions after the Second World War and the horrors, and, you know, and how what we as lawyers would all have liked to have been around that table with Eleanor Roosevelt, with Rennie Kassan, and with those incredible jurists who are really um, looking at how do you create a sort of template by which all uh, uh, legal systems can be tested as to whether they're living up to uh, the, the values and, uh, and principles um, that uh, should operate in any civilized world in which our common humanity is the central uh, focus. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, we've been seeing ever since, uh, you know, 9-11, there was a point at the end of the, uh, 20th century, where I thought, you know, the 21st century was going to be the, the, the century of human rights. Um, we had seen Pinochet being brought, uh, uh, being sort of basically um, uh, uh, under house arrest in London, while the, the courts were considering whether um, he could be, um, uh, he should be uh, um, 
de dealt with for um, what the horrors of what had happened uh, in Chile. And, uh, and while he returned to Chile, it did give a sense that there is accountability, there is universal jurisdiction. There are some things that are so horrifying that we have responsibility to, our, to, our, to, to humankind, uh, to the men and women of the rest of the world, um, to, to, to provide them with support and the solidarity that has, was mentioned earlier by Frank Clark. And, uh, and the, I felt that moment had arrived. And of course, what changed it all was 9-11 and, uh, and, and a readiness to use torture, uh, a, a readiness to, to tear up some of our commitments under conventions, which we somehow thought were sacrosanct. Um, and, uh, and the same thing, of course, has happened around just now, the great discussions that are taking place about genocide um, in uh, to the Rohingya in Myanmar, which uh, um, was so shocking and appalling. Um, the, the business of what happened to the Yazidi people and, uh, and indeed to Christians in Syria uh, um, over the, at the time of the Syrian uh, war. And if, you know, the, if you've, I've been to the Iraq and to the Northern Iraq, to the refugee camps and met with and taken testimonies from those women who were enslaved um, and, uh, and treated so uh, horribly, not just, not just raped themselves in, over and over again, but also having watched their, their brothers and fathers and so on being, being beheaded and slain. And yet, of course, um, non-state actors can't be uh, tried for genocide. But some of the nations around might have responsibility for their failure to intervene. And of course, now the situation for the Uyghur in China. So there are issues. And of course, what our government says is, is for an international court to decide whether there's a genocide or not. Suddenly, an international court's being invoked when it suits them. And yet international courts are not so uh, convenient when it comes to matters closer to home. So um, I, I don't come with great news. I think our world is in a parlous state, but it's for all of us. And, uh, and I know that judges have a much harder time about being the, the people who can speak out, especially when they're still in office. But after being in office, and certainly for us as lawyers and, to, and those in bar associations, um, the International Bar Association has 187 bar associations from around the world. Now, not all of them are, are bar associations, such as the, the one that we're speaking under the banner of tonight. Uh, um, but, but bar associations have a really important role to play in maintaining standards and, uh, and uh, speaking for human rights, both domestically and internationally. Thank you. Thank you very much, Baroness Hale. Thank you for that. Can I be heard? Thank you. Uh, thank you. And I think you've I'm, just promoted me, Maura. I just think you've promoted me to, to Baroness Hale. <laughs> I'm, I'm Kennedy. Kennedy, my apologies, my apologies. She's a great friend, but uh, <laughs> well, we're, we're going to hear from her tomorrow. So maybe that's why I'm being confused. So my apologies. But, but thank you for that very interesting speech. I particularly like the bit about the review of the review of the review of judicial review. Uh, that's a line that will stick with us, I'm sure. Um, so our, our final speaker this evening is our own colleague, Michael McDool, senior counsel. So Michael was educated at Gonzaga College here in Dublin. He graduated from UCD with a degree in economics and politics. He qualified as a barrister in 1974, and he was called to the inner bar in 1987. He was also a Choctadola, a TD, on some three occasions, 1987, 1992, and 2002. He has chaired the working group in company law enforcement and compliance, which reported in 1998, and also 
chaired the Financial Services Advisory Group, which reported in 1999. <clears throat> in 1999, he was appointed Attorney General, a post he held for some three years. He was appointed our Minister for Justice, Equality and Law Reform uh, in June of 2002. He has also served as Tónishta, which is our Deputy Prime Minister, from September 2006 to June 2007. He is currently a member of Shannad Éireann, the Irish Senate, and he is also a member of the Arachthus Justice Committee, the Committee on European Affairs, and also the Shannad's Committee on Procedure, Privilege and Oversight. He practices as a senior counsel at the Law Library here in Ireland, and he is married to Professor Neave Brennan, and they have three sons. Um, Michael, I believe that you're going to be addressing us on a paper, again, I hope I have the title correct, Realism and the International Rule of Law. Michael, well, please. Firstly, Chairman, uh, can I thank you and the Bar Council for inviting me to participate in this um, uh, really interesting conference and congratulate you on its organization and um, uh, say how much I've enjoyed uh, participating in it and listening to the contributions of the previous speakers with which uh, all of which uh, I agree with everything they have said. I wanted to um, uh, uh, bring us to the question of realism and the international rule of law because much is spoken and written about the rule of law in the realm of international affairs. Many people, particularly lawyers uh, and uh, academics, are attracted to the notion of achieving an international legal order where, which both protects and vindicates the rights of people and their communities and regulates the conduct of government as it affects its own citizens, the citizens of other states, and their relations and conduct uh, with government and other peoples. And as Helena was just saying, since the end of the Cold War in 1989 to 1992, a new mindset uh, became conventional, a mindset which believed that the world was on the threshold and should be viewed as a shared space in which shared values and aspirations could find expression in international norms and agreements, which we elevate to the status of international law. Um, you know, we have things such as the uh, International Declaration on, on Human Rights, but um, we have to remember that the Soviet Union and its satellite states were party to that agreement and party to its, 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 its authorship. So uh, we have to be careful to um, distinguish between fact and fiction uh, uh, as to, as to the, what the state of uh, human rights law and the international uh, rule of law actually is at any given stage. Um, notions of international law have many facets, including international climate change treaties, climate justice is a new phrase that's coming on stream, international subscription to fundamental standards of criminal law and in, in, uh, in enforcement as, as represented by the International Criminal Court, the rights of multinational investors under international instruments, such as the World Trade Organization and regional trade agreements, such as the CETA, the European-Canadian uh, agreement to which I'll come back in a moment. Um, all of these things are put alongside rights conventions such as the ECHR, and the European Union's Charter of Fundamental Rights and Freedoms. And there's a, a kind of an international orthodoxy of belief that there is such a thing as an agreed corpus of effective and enforceable rights and remedies known as the international rule of law. And you, you know, some of the elements of that have been described by previous speakers. You know, the presence of a free media, the presence of a, an independent judiciary, 
the idea of an elected parliament, a genuinely elected parliament where people can, uh, can uh, um, uh, participate in the democratic process. And um, listening to uh, uh, Helena and uh, Declan Morgan on the whole question of um, uh, judicial review and the attack on judicial review, it struck me that um, uh, maybe we're very lucky in this co uh, country that we do have a written constitution and that uh, the role of the uh, uh, judiciary in uh, reviewing um, the actions of the legislature and the executive is fully recognized and accepted as part of our fundamental constitutional fabric. The international human rights community, uh, which has emerged, uh, sees itself as a kind of transnational movement that views the affairs of mankind as affairs which are either uh, ought to be or are regulated by enforceable legal norms. Rights speak, which is a phrase uh, which is uh, sometimes used, is not merely an international language of lawyers and human rights activists. It's almost become an international secular humanist religion of sorts. And the faithful of this religion, um, uh, and like many other religions, they tend to congregate on the moral high ground. But there is a danger that their view from that elevated intellectual position detaches them from what I call the granularity of political activity and, and from a keen appreciation of how fragile their moral ecosystem can be and more importantly is becoming. And I agree with Helena, the, the news is not good. Um, uh, we, are, we are in very, very challenging times and the optimism of five or seven years ago, 10 years ago seems to be um, um, questionable these days. And I'd say there is a danger of moral altitude sickness if we stick to the pure thin air of theory, we have to look at what is actually happening in the world around us. And I propose that this granular reality rather than theory is what lawyers should concentrate on. And in particular, it seems to me that the liberal democracies on this planet are, by them, are themselves very fragile and vulnerable for many of the reasons that have been expressed by previous speakers here today, not merely to external subversion and threat but also to internal subversion and erosion. Um, one only has to look at the inauguration day riots on Capitol Hill and the subsequent emergence of what appears to be a widespread conviction among US Republicans that the recent presidential election was the invalid outcome of voter th uh, vote theft and fraud to understand the threat to American democracy doesn't um, emanate uh, from Moscow or Beijing in particular, it's homegrown in many respects. And this is compounded by naked attempts uh, um, by the Republicans again, unfortunately, at uh, voter suppression of the most vulnerable. And you look at the proposals in various American state legislatures to make it an electoral offense to hand out water to people queuing in the sunshine to vote. That's, the, that's what's going on right now in the United States. And what I say is in truth, um, uh, truly liberal democracies are the exception rather than the rule. And while many states uh, internationally are outwardly clothed with some of the vestiges of electoral democracy, they are neither liberal nor democratic at their core. And if we talk about the Western liberal uh, democracies, we're really talking about, uh, they aren't all located in the West of the world. We have Australia, New Zealand uh, and, and the like, and, and Japan to some extent, um, but, they are um, almost without exception, the common law world married to the European Union law world. And after that, uh, you know, liberal democracy is, is a rare bird. Now, looking back over 120 years to um, the time when Frank Pakenham wrote his great book, The Struggle for Africa, um, 
you know, uh, the countries which are now mainly classified as Western liberal democracies, and even Japan, uh, were busily engaged in imperial and quasi-imperial uh, uh, projects. I mean, the Americans were suppressing the Philippines Republic as far back as 1902 to establish it as an effective American colony. Um, uh, so we have to remember that um, the driving force of that uh, um, um, international movement of what are now the Western liberal democracies was um, the uh, claim that they were establishing civilization throughout the world. And we have to remember that um, that justification, which was very self-confident, very strident, um, the, the uh, uh, propagation of, of civilization um, is sometimes seen today by people uh, around the world as the Western democracies uh, repackaging their influence and their demands for economic uh, dominance uh, with, uh, it, under the package of the rule of law. Primacy of international law concerning free movement of capital, the right to invest and own property in other countries, the protection of investors' rights and intellectual properties, and the gradual dismantling of tariffs and trade barriers can also be seen by the vulnerable people of the, the world and the emerging and developing democracies as uh, the dominance agenda of international wealth. Now, in Ireland and elsewhere in the EU, there is currently a controversy about the European-Canada trade agreement known as CETA. Much of that controversy is concerned with a proposal to make individual member states of the European Union amenable in a specially created court to litigation brought by international corporate investors. And one uh, major London law firm featured on its website a claim that the mere establishment of such a jurisdiction would have a beneficial inhibitory effect on the willingness of EU member states to use their legislatures and executive regulatory powers in a manner which might be inimical to the commercial interests of that firm's large corporate clients. So for many, it's not exactly clear why a sovereign state with an established and functioning legal order should dilute its sovereignty by submitting itself to the jurisdiction of a specialist trade court, putting the state itself on an equal footing with an international shareholder owned private corporation. Now, the reason I mention all of that is this, that there is an economic bias to um, many of our concepts of the international rule of law. And I'm just asking ourselves to sober up and to, to rem remember that it is not all about uh, the downtrodden being helped. It is a, a, it's a lot, there are other agendas working in it as well. And we shouldn't forget that it is individual nation states acting in concert, which currently challenge the capacity of international corporations so to conduct their activities and their corporate structures to eliminate any tax burden on their internationally generated profits. And the extent to which those nation states will be agreeable to concerted action against avoidance of corporate tax, taxation it depends, of course, on the individual needs of those states and in the ultimate will be decided by their internal political processes, as well as their need to coexist in trade and economic alliances, what I call their political and economic realpolitik. In many ways, it's nation states that provide granularity to otherwise entirely theoretical concepts of human rights and the rule of law internationally. Now turning as, as, Bar as Helena Kenny, Kennedy uh, did uh, um, herself to um, international uh, power block politics, it's clear, for instance, that the so-called People's Republic of China 
is rapidly emerging as a, an economic superpower equipped with uh, economic military superpower. And the plight of the Uyghurs to which she referred is well known and needn't be described uh, further here. But as far as the rule of law is concerned, Beijing's treatment of its Uyghur minority in Xinjiang province is unspeakable. And yet, as far as can be seen, there's little or nothing that the liberal democracies can do, apart from condemnation, to halt the barbarous uh, degradation of an entire people. Now, Beijing's cynical and determined abrogation of the solemn uh, uh, international treaty, one country, two system, uh, promises that it made in respect of Hong Kong, also shows how weak the international rule of law can appear when confronting superpower exceptionalism. Only today we have the entire staff of a Hong Kong newspaper rounded up uh, uh, um, for being an opposition paper uh, and imprisoned um, under uh, Beijing's national security law. And as someone who traveled recently to, to Taiwan to witness their democratic election process, I was struck by the contrast between the rights and happiness of Taiwan citizens compared with those of mainland China and indeed Hong Kong. And we, you, know, you have to ask yourself the question, what can be done about the Uyghurs? What can be done about Hong Kong? Um, uh, and appeals to the international rule of law may assist us in condemnation, but no one seems to want to enforce international law norms by direct political action, even in the form of severe sanctions. And on the question of sanctions in China, I make the point as well that it's noteworthy that the odious Trump administration was willing to contemplate the use of sanctions against China comprehensively, uh, but only to defend what they perceived as American corporate economic interests. Um, and no such appetite exists apparently in respect of civil liberties and human rights violations in, of ordinary people. And at the same time, the US roundly condemned and rejected and sought to undermine uh, in, in, in the Trump period, the International Criminal Court. It, it tried to uh, make it uh, effectively an offense to participate or to cooperate with it. And that raises the question as to what, if anything, the Americans think can or should be done uh, to Ratko Mladic uh, type people uh, for, the role, for, for their role in the, in the Srebrenica ma massacre. Closer to home, we have the uh, egregious and brazen defiance of international rule of law by the Putin regime and by Belarus. The only response to uh, Putin's use of ext extraterritorial murder, um, uh, which has happened in the United Kingdom, uh, internal repression of, 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 of opponents such as Alexei Navalny, the shooting down of, a, 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 of an aircraft over Ukraine, the hijacking of an Irish-owned aircraft in Belarus to capture a, a political opponent seems to be on the level of a mild order of sanctions. And uh, we have to ask ourselves, do con trading considerations with Russia and China um, really outweigh our collective commitment to articulating, upholding, and enforcing uh, international human rights law and the rule of law internationally. And just in case you think I'm uh, uh, critical of others and not of ourselves, we amalgamated our foreign, uh, during uh, the um, economic crisis after, after the, uh, uh, we amalgamated foreign affairs with trade. And uh, just to remind us all that Ireland exports more than half a billion of milk and dairy products annually to China. And I can tell you one thing, you speak to parliamentarians about, uh, about uh, being overly critical of the Chinese regime and doing things in relation to China, 
And the, 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 this, um, especially from rural deputies, is in the back of their mind. They don't want uh, the, the agricultural community in Ireland um, uh, too deeply upset on the subject of China's uh, role. And I'd ask, uh, I'd also ask that, I mean, um, uh, uh, you know, and uh, Declan Morden and Elena uh, Kennedy have dealt with this, so I'm not going to uh, go into any great detail on it, that the Tory administration of the United Kingdom has very seriously damaged uh, Britain's reputation as a state committed to the international rule of law and, and observation of its solemn and freely negotiated uh, treaty um, uh, obligations by the actions it took in respect of the uh, exit, uh, exiting the uh, European Union. So it, maybe it's always been the case that principle is always constantly alloyed and diluted by, um, by the requirements of realpolitik. Liberal democracies have always tolerated the rule of despots as long as those despots uh, rule was consistent with their own strategic and economic interest. <clears throat> and we only have to look at the state murder of Khashoggi uh, in, uh, in Istanbul and the attempted murder of Skripal in Salisbury to understand how flexible is the great power's differential commitment to upholding uh, minimum requirements of the rule of law as practiced by their allies and, and opponents respectively. Outright condemnation of Salisbury, muted condemnation of uh, Khashoggi's murder because Saudi Arabia is important in, in the international matrix. As we are, are we more concerned about the economic threat of international cybercrime and the emergence of digital cryptocurrencies and the protection of international uh, intellectual property rights than we are with uh, upholding the rule of law in the form of basic uh, civil and political liberty and the individual human rights. Is Saudi despot despotism and for instance, creeping Israeli annexation of occupied Palestinian territories more acceptable because they are considered to be our strategic allies of a, of, of a Western liberal alliance. And finally, I, I just want to raise one issue and that is, I, I think that as con people concerned with human rights and the international rule of law, we need some realism and honesty on the subject of migration. It is fashionable in some quarters to entirely conflate rights accorded to refugees by international conventions in the 1950s with a broader asserted right of economic migration. And there is notwithstanding some obfuscatory efforts of activists, uh, um, um, a radical difference between the two. People brashing down the, 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 the fence in Ceuta are not, they haven't traveled from um, um, sub-Saharan Africa uh, to escape tyranny. They are there uh, for economic and, uh, reasons and perfectly understandable. I'm not condemning them at all, but that is what they are, uh, are there to do. And I, I really do believe that we have to, as a, as a legal community, um, resist the attempt to say migration, refugee, it's more or less the same thing and uh, it's the same problem. It, they are different issues and uh, there are different solutions to them. The rule of law is clearly something in relation to uh, um, refugees. Um, the uh, economic justice internationally is something which uh, is, is probably relevant to the other issue. And so I, I, I want to finish by just saying the following. We have to be honest and we have to be truthful about the limitations of concepts such as the international rule of law. Um, I think it's sometimes a bit naive to reduce huge swathes of political, ideological, economic, religious conflicts and, and the resolution of those conflicts to a simple construct, a legal construct uh, of international law 
and to use the right the language of rights um, uh, um, international law jurisprudence and to entertain an ambition for somehow the justiciability of all conflicts and imbalances of wealth by reference to a legal construct known as the international rule of law. That's not to say that we have to abandon or turn our backs on our ambitions for the vindication of human rights, civil and political liberties, or for economic justice, and to uh, just hand these over to the vagaries of international, uh, competing international political interests. It's merely to remind ourselves that we live in a political world where the rule of law is far from supreme. And even the term rule of law is far from universally agreed right across the Islamic world, for instance. In the ultimate, we have to be honest and realistic about the language of our ideals, and we have to be honest about the possibility of their realization. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, for that paper. Um, we're now going to move on to the questions and answers uh, section. Um, I just have one question of my own I'd like to throw out, which is the consideration that certain of the tabloid press owners um, who may have and have in the past referred to judges as being disgraceful, such as happened in the UK. They have uh, turnover that's greater than certain economies and their intellectual and or corporate interests seem to take priority. Um, but are there any steps available to, for example, for example, lawyers and parliamentarians to try and limit the uh, flexing of the muscle of corporate individuals of that nature who use the papers that they've bought in order to beat the drum that they specifically want beaten? I mean, what can we do to stop uh, an organization that has an economy bigger than the country itself uh, from flexing muscle of that nature? Well, What's the answer? Legislation? Well, could I say this? I mean, if you look at the um, Rupert Murdoch influence, um, not merely on British politics uh, through the Sun and the Times uh, and uh, his other, his other uh, media interests, but also his influence on American politics through Sky News, um, there are huge questions about media ownership. Uh, and you know, we, myself and Helena have referred to free media being kind of the canary in the, in the, in, in, in the coal mine. But what does free actually mean? And uh, uh, you know, if it's free to um, uh, uh, attack um, uh, the, the, the rule of law as a concept, or to uh, vilify those who, who are supposed to be supposed to be independently um, um, upholding the rule of law, if that is the, if, if that's what's going on, there are fundamental questions. And our, our, our uh, Chief Justice Designate yesterday talked about social media in this in this context. Happily, our conventional media, if I may use those, th th those terms, have, have, have been and are respectful of the constitutional function of the, of the judiciary. But um, uh, it, it is sometimes pretty shocking to see what goes on in the United States and to see the way in which, for instance, uh, the Trump administration um, uh, put its crosswires on the Supreme Court to um, uh, attempt you know, um, uh, a blatantly political uh, um, uh, uh, policy uh, um, uh, platform uh, and was egged on and 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 uh, abetted by the uh, by the um, by the sky sky uh, by the um, Fox News network in, in the United States. Michael, it's not. It wasn't just the Supreme Court. 
200 judges, federal judges have been appointed, were appointed during the, the Trump administration. And, uh, and uh, Mitch McConnell has got a lot to answer for in making that possible across the states. Uh, and these will be life appointments and they're all people who had to pass the test of whether they were Trumpite. And so um, uh, the, the, the legacy of that is going to live on uh, for a very long time. So what's happened um, in the capturing of the judiciary in the United States um, is something that can't be uh, dealt with um, by a democratic administration stepping in uh, for a number of years. They're, they're, they're here to stay, those judges. Could it be said that Mitch McConnell in his personal ambition to become the third most powerful man in America, which he potentially could become if he comes, becomes speaker, that's been his ambition, his personal ambition, that with that in mind, he didn't step up to the plate when he had the opportunity to ensure that a populist such as Trump would never be able to run again? I, I have no doubt that he was making calculations in doing that. Um, he spoke with forked tongue. On the one hand, he was decrying what happened on the 6th of January. Um, and uh, at the same time, he was uh, not prepared to uh, uh, rally um, the Republicans in the Senate to, to speak for uh, uh, democratic values. Um, I, I, I think he's someone that we you know, should you know, hold in a certain amount of disrepute because of the way he behaved. And also you have to look at the fate of those people who did stand up against the Republican um, uh, drive uh, um, to politicize the judiciary and to resist uh, handing over the White House. I mean, they are being, uh, they are going through a process of vicious deselection at the moment and uh, internal exile in the Republican party. Um, you know, so this is part of a piece, as I say, with the voter suppression laws uh, and the um, extraordinary um, uh, um, anti-abortion regimes that are being established right across the United States. Can, can I, can I, uh, Michael, Michael um, posed something very important, which was about the fact that, you know, uh, we, we, we can elevate um, the idea of the rule of law and about making sure that, that it has its presence both uh, domestically and internationally, um, but we mustn't uh, uh, delude ourselves. It's why I, I think that it's very hard to talk about these things. And I know that it's, uh, um, uh, it, it is, there are constraints upon our uh, senior judiciary to do such a thing. But it, it, I'm not constrained from saying that, um, uh, that I do think that there has to be a taming of the, the economic order that has prevailed for a number of years. I mean, we, we've seen uh, the, you know, uh, you know, sort of liberal economics um, uh, uh, rule at the World Bank, the, the um, uh, IMF, and every um, uh, bank, uh, you know, uh, whether the European bank or any of these things, it was the, 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 the methodology which was small government, shrink the welfare state, um, you, you know, you know uh, all of that stuff, you know, low taxation and so forth. All of that became the common currency across the globe and it has created a huge gap between rich and poor. And so you can't address many of these issues without looking at that bigger thing. I say to lawyers, if you want to understand the purpose of law, look at power. You have to understand where, where it rests and what it's about. And one of the things that um, we sought to do, uh, David Alton and myself um, uh, in the House of Lords, was to introduce uh, um, to the trade bill, was to introduce an amendment which was seeking to say we don't trade with genocidal nations and that uh, and that uh, 
uh, our duty is to prevent genocide, not to wait until it's happened and count the bodies and decide whether they're mass graves and so on. That, that's not what the convention requires of us. And, uh, and we, we won that over and over and over again in the House of Lords. Uh, it, they voted with huge majorities for that amendment. And uh, the majority that is enjoyed by the current government in the United Kingdom means that they can actually demolish anything that seems to have currency. And, uh, and I think there was a lot of support for that in the, in, in the UK, which was to, to say, we do have to decide whether we trade with some of these places that are absolutely not players when it comes to, to the good stuff. I went to Turkey with Agnes Kalamar. I was part of her, um, her, her the, the team that she had to draw around her to go and do that investigation into the murder of Khashoggi. I heard the tapes of that man being murdered. I have absolutely no doubt that the international community failed in its duty to actually call to account in a proper way those who were really responsible for it in Saudi Arabia. And we put trade interests above everything else. And, and at the same time, we, we narrowly avoided having Ivanka Trump made president of the World Bank, which <laughs> Just um, you, you mentioned the word uh, power there, Baroness, and power now and strength to a degree seems to um, come from the amount of information one has. So we're, we're back to the big corporations, in my opinion, where certain of the large corporations, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all of these companies, that they, they are so large and multinational, they are bigger than, uh, as I say, countries, and in some instances, bigger than continents. And yet they appear to operate uh, without any restraint. There's no tethering, there's no haltering of them. There doesn't seem to be any control. We all did applaud, uh, I have to add, however, or at least I did when, when Trump was removed from his uh, Twitter account. But there's, there's an opportunity for them to do that ultimately down the road in respect of anyone who tweets or writes in opposition to their specific uh, corporate uh, aims, which is basically gain and profit. I mean, they just want billions. What one person can do with billions of billions is beyond me. But um, would you agree that, the again, there's this lack of appetite uh, on the part of the powers that be to invoke the appropriate legislation to somehow tether and somehow harness back to reality these large uh, multinational billion dollar a day companies who control our information. Listen, data has become the most valuable resource in the world. It's more valuable than oil now. Um, and, uh, and it's been monetized. And what we know is that, and it's not obvious to the people and our young go on these things and uh, their, their information is being gathered using algorithms and all of that stuff. And it's, the purpose is to look at those users of this uh, social media as uh, ultimately as consumers. Uh, well, in fact, they become the product in many ways. Um, and, uh, and so there, there are serious issues around those big corporations and the, the lack of restraint and regulation around them because they're so powerful and they can move their interests to different places and they avoid taxation and all of that. And it is that you need to come together in order to create the constraints that, that, that would have to be. Um, but of course, look at the state of our world. The UN is, is passive in the face of many of these things that happen because there was a period when Trump was in the White House where they really felt they were on the back foot and they actually feared that, that they, would, they would disintegrate, that actually there would be people more and more withdrawing. 
that Trump took himself out of the Human Rights Council. He refused a visa to the chief prosecutor in the International Criminal Court. I mean, his behavior and disrespect for the institutions, international institutions, was, was shocking. Um, but you, of course, you get copying of it by Orban, by Duterte, mm -hmm. by these different people. They start following suit. Then they don't recognize that decisions that are being made by uh, the entities and the blocks which they belong to or by the courts that, that uh, you know, supervise those uh, uh, relationships. So, you know, th that, that tone was set. And so, for example, when the question is asked, why didn't the European Union do anything about Orban and, or, or Poland? The, the answer is that they're fearful that the, that the, whole, the whole fabric of those institutions will start to uh, disintegrate. And so um, I, I think that there, there are real issues here about that, that business, which was disruption, the politics of disruption. Um, uh, and I think that um, there is a serious amount of rebuilding that has to be done. But, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm perennially an optimist, but I'm anxious about what the future will be. Well, I've just point, been, sorry. My point, and very briefly, Maura, is yep. just to say that there is um, a way of looking at everything as kind of rule of law, human rights, uh, and a kind of a legalistic view of the world. But there is also the dirty realpolitik view of the world as well. And um, one thing that, uh, going back to uh, Chief Justice Clark's contribution was, the judiciary have to be careful not to become politicized. Uh, and that is hugely important. And the judiciary that we value is an apolitical uh, judiciary, a judiciary that doesn't have a political agenda or a, an overt political agenda. Uh, uh, and um, that's um, for some other day, another bar conference on social and economic justiciable rights uh, we have I'm to, we have to look, look over our shoulder at all of that. That's yeah. all I've um, I've I've just been told that it's it's not a, a personal conversation that I'm allowed to have with everybody, which is what I've been doing. So my apologies. I now have to go to the questions that everybody else have uh, have taken the time to send in. So the first question is for Baroness Kennedy. Does Baroness Kennedy think that the sanctions imposed on UK barristers by China recently has had the desired effect from China's point of view? Will they make it more likely that chambers, when hiring, will shun barristers who might, might potentially irk the Chinese authorities for work they are doing with clients affected by China, China's human rights abuses? Well, um, I'm, one of the, I'm one of the barristers who's been sanctioned by China. Um, and uh, um, um, but I happen to, you know, I, I have the support of colleagues and so on. And uh, um, although I was disappointed that my own inn didn't come to my support, whereas Inner Temple did uh, for Sir Geoffrey Nice, um, uh, uh, who was also sanctioned. Um, but um, uh, the, the, the problem, of course, is that commercial lawyers, if you're in a set of chambers, which also includes a, a, a cohort of commercial lawyers, then, um, then, then, of course, they're concerned about their ability to function. So a whole set of lawyers remove themselves from a particular set of chambers um, uh, to practice from uh, Singapore because they were fearful of the implications of, being, of a whole set of chambers being sanctioned. Now, you've got to understand the, 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 the rationale for this. I do not have any uh, assets in China. Uh, I don't have a house on the Yangtze. I, I, I won't be holidaying there. I have been, I always make the point of saying that when I'm criticizing what's being done to the Uyghur, I, I make a point of saying, I, this is not a criticism of the Chinese people. 
I've gone to China and spent time with Chinese people, with Chinese lawyers and so on. I have, I, I have as many students have come and been uh, in the uh, educational institutions that I've uh, sort of headed up. And, uh, and I, I enjoy the, the, the being with, with the, the people of China. What I'm concerned about is what is, what, is, what is being done. And it's not just being done, of course, to the Uyghur. Horrible things are being done in relation to human rights, to the whole of the population who are being surveyed at a level that we you know, can't countenance uh, ourselves. So um, uh, the, the thing that I think that lawyers, though, should be being in, in solidarity with each other. Um, and I think it is, I mean, ask, you're ask, you know, ask your British lawyer friends, did you? Uh, uh, speak out? Did you get your in of court to, to say that this was unacceptable to go after lawyers who actually are speaking about rights and uh, and where we freedom of expression matters in our country? Um, and so it was it was a disappointing thing that um, I mean that our bar council certainly supported us as lawyers who who were sanctioned, but um, uh, uh, you know not all entities within our legal system did, and I think that was regrettable. Okay, thank you for that. Um, Next question, does the panel have a view on possible wider ways to engage the public so as to guard against the negative effects of populist agendas? Is it the view of the panel that diversification of the elite, uh, particularly amongst the legal profession, may go some way to achieve this goal? Well, um, could I just say this? Uh, Barristers and, and um, many solicitors are regarded as an elite in society and um, maybe to some extent uh, we are an economic elite and uh, we're not um, uh, um, uh, drawn mainly from um, uh, the disadvantaged um, uh, aspects of Irish society uh, to start with, but that is not universally true and, um, uh, you know, um, uh, but the problem is this that, I mean, we're now um, we're in a we're in a process of transformation. For instance, on gender balance in the legal profession, uh, the uh, the change has been dramatic. I mean, when I when in your intro there, when I go back to 1974, when I became a barrister, there were maybe five or six women at the at the at, at the most in uh, practicing as barristers in Ireland. Now it's dramatically different, and uh, the um, proposed judicial appointments legislation. Uh, aims at achieving gender balance on the bench um, uh, as one of the criteria for uh, selection on the basis of merit. So, I mean, I think things are changing that way. But, I mean, one thing that we have to be realistic again about is if you want successful lawyers to go onto the bench, in other words, people who, are, who have, uh, have been successful in their careers, you're not going to be going to... The, to, to um, to uh, somebody who's been uh, at the bottom of the economic ladder in the legal profession. And um, that's a problem which, which uh, I think we have to think of ways to make the ladder less greasy for, um, for uh, people to, 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 to climb. But I don't believe um, that, uh, you know, I, I, th I think we should just uh, strike back at the notion that uh, uh, the, you know, the judiciary is populated by products of elitism and, uh, Mr. Justice Clark there uh, is, is an example. I don't think, and I know him for, for many, many years since my college days, nobody would, uh, I don't think, uh, hold him up uh, as, 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 as an example of elitism at any stage in his career uh, or his personal life. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, the next question, and I think this is reverting back to Mr. Justice Clark and his um, talk about the Polish uh, lawyers and the march. There is another case pending before the Polish Constitutional Tribunal, the case of K3 forward slash 2-1, uh, or E, assessment of the constitutionality, Polish constitution, of the chosen provisions of the EU treaty. This has been put on hold. It aims to remove the supremacy of the EU courts by allowing the domestic courts to issue final rulings and disregard all EU rulings. Are there any speedy, sorry, speedy or immediate legal ways available to the EU to reinstate the rule of law in Poland or, or are we looking at the beginning of their expulsion from the EU? I'll, I see Mr. Justice Clark is leaning forward. It's on mute, Judge. Um, there's a political element to that question, which I might answer on the 11th of October, uh, <laughs> but not before then. <laughs> um, but but from, from a legal perspective, I think there are, there are always structural problems about these, these questions. <clears throat> Firstly, the nuclear weapon that's available under the EU treaties requires unanimity apart from the country that's been sanctioned. And at the moment, the chances of Poland voting for any sanction against Hungary or Hungary voting for any sanction against Poland is not politically realistic. So lesser routes have to be found. Um, I always thought it, it, it's an interesting reflection um, on, on our constitutional position, which is relevant to the question asked. Um, we probably give, as a matter of Irish constitution law, a higher status to European Union law than most countries. It is written into the Irish constitution that nothing in the constitution can be used to uh, prevent the effectiveness of European Union law. So we have more <coughs> written into our own constitution uh, the primacy of European Union law. That isn't the case in most countries. I mean, a lot of deference is shown, but as a matter of German constitutional law, strictly speaking, uh, primacy is not absolute. And we've seen that in some of the recent, or the one recent case uh, in the, the Bundesverfassungsgericht, where they, as I understand it, in their theory, they would say it's a statutory regime in Germany. The German parliament can confer primacy on European Union law, but it can't do it in a way that's in breach of the German constitution. That wouldn't apply in Ireland. Um, and I suspect the problem in Poland is that internally, according to Polish law, it may be a lot closer to the German model than ours. So what, but then I think you get into the more political end of the question, what practical ways are there to bring pressure on countries um, to uh, comply with their obligations under the treaties? And, and that's, that's a hard question. You know, at least in within a national legal order, we know what happens. Courts make orders, there's ways of enforcing them. But how do you, you know, there isn't the European sheriff to be sent in to enforce the decisions of the European court in Poland. It requires political action, I think. Uh, mm. and, and that's really a question, as I say, for the moment, I leave to those who are in the political arena. Thank you very much, Chief Justice. Um, the next question, how as lawyers do we ensure that we maintain an appropriate wisdom of repugnance 
in respect of breaches of the rule of law at national and international level, and the presence of what seems to be a normalization of such breaches, what does the panel think are generally effective mechanisms for us as a profession, especially in a constitutional democracy, to maintain an appropriate voice? Uh, well, you know, I, I, um, I do think that we, you know, organizations like bar, bar associations, um, uh, for us also includes things like the Royal Colleges of Surgeons, any of these sort of things that are protecting professions and so on, but can see things that are going to be damaging to the professionalism and to, and to the thing that we're about, um, I think have a duty to speak out. And I think that there, there's too much caution um, often by bar associations about saying this is going to interfere with the rule of law and, and there has to be greater willingness to actually be prepared to disagree with government um, in a way that is, you know, um, one can find the right kind of language, but you have to be able to do it. I've just recently, we're listening to uh, Michael talking about diversity in the judiciary and so on, I've just recently headed up a review of the Royal College of Surgeons in in trying to create diversity at the higher levels, because um, just like when I came to the bar in the 70s too, there were, you know, if you applied to a set of chambers, there were chambers that said, we don't take women. And, uh, and then, you know, at the end of the, the 70s, they said, uh, after the Sex Discrimination Act, uh, women, we've got one. And, uh, and so, you know, it, they, they, they found ways of getting around everything. Um, and we were, I, I came in at a time when there were hardly any women. And there has been a change, but what you have to do is you also have to be quite proactive on this thing of creating channels and opportunities lower down in the, in the processes so that people join into these things and are given opportunities to develop the skills and so on, which will take them up through the ranks and into the higher uh, levels of a profession and then of the judiciary. So, I mean, um, I'm, I'm always quite questioning of notions like merit. I think that you've got to say, yeah, but who decides what is meritorious? Who, who are the gatekeepers of all of that stuff? So, um, but, but back to this business about what is the role of, of our professional organizations and when these teeth terrible things going on. And I do think I mean, for example, I, I, I'm involved with Justice, which is a, an organization in the UK, which often does briefings for parliamentarians and so on, on issues to do with law. And we'll speak out when things are clearly in contravention of the rule of law, like the business of the attack on judicial review at the moment. So I think that you have to, on the right things, speak out and be heard um, to, to, to express your concerns um, about things that are going to really interfere with the rule of law, the independence of judges, and uh, and uh, the, the quality of our judicial systems. Thank you very much for that, Baroness Kennedy. Um, I'm being told that uh, the, the, the time is up, so to speak. So it just behoves me um, to express not only my personal gratitude, but the, the, the gratitude of all of our attendees and the members of the Bar of Ireland to all of our speakers who've given of their time generously. Firstly, I'd like to thank our own Chief Justice. I'd like to thank Lord Chief Justice um, Sir Declan Morgan. I'd like to thank you, Baroness Kennedy, I got it correct this time, my apologies, and also to our own Michael McDowell. Uh, and thank you to everybody who has assist us, assisted today in this presentation. Um, so thank you to everybody and stay safe.